The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to create a life that's intentional and dynamic? Welcome to The Intentional Spirit with your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome, everyone, and we're so glad that you're here on our show. And uh, as you know, as Intentional Spirits, we have uh, exciting guests all the time that teach us practical applications and how to live in today's times, with the things that we face, with our families, with our children, with our friends, etc. And we have a tremendous expert today. We, we have a lot of languaging going on in our, in our culture about depression and sadness and um, losing that joy and that zest of life. And so we brought in expert today, Dr. Stuart Eisendroth. And he researches and has brought so much wealth of information to talk about when antidepressants are not enough. Thank you for being on our show today. We're delighted that you're here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, Do you prefer me to call you Dr. Stewart or Dr. Eisendroth? What is your preference? Dr. Eisendroth would be fine. Okay. All right. So um, a huge topic now. Uh, We have so much energy around depression, anxiety, mental health. Um, In your opinion, has this always been the case and we have now learned as a culture to talk about it? Or are some of these realities new? I was just really excited to ask you that, along with many other thoughts, but has it always been this way in our culture? Well, depression has been known for many years, and uh, it has been written about or drawn about and by artists uh, going back, uh, Rembrandt, uh, painting about uh, depression, to even earlier, Hippocrates talking about melancholia, uh, depressive states. So depression has been around a long time, but I think we're learning more about how to recognize it and, in fact, realize that it's increasing as we go through uh, modern life. We lose a lot of the support systems that were traditionally there, and now uh, the World Health Organization estimates that there are 
at any one point in time, there are 300 million people suffering from depression around the world. Wow. Well, I was thinking as as a frame of reference that um, it was very evident, you know, growing up that I was surrounded by a number of people that were, shall you say, chemically imbalanced, depressed. It was just such a thing that you weren't allowed to talk about. And I had two aunts take their lives. There just wasn't that space. So I applaud you for the work that you're doing and the education and how you are helping people become healthier in the topic matter altogether. How did you get in this line of work? Uh, was there a, a story in your childhood or something you said, I need to be part of the change? Well, I, I uh, started out in psychiatry because I was interested in how the mind functions. And uh, you can't really be a psychiatrist without facing uh, the great uh, number one problem in psychiatry. It really is depression. It's the most common form of disability that there is in the world, more disability than cancer or heart disease. So I was very interested just from the viewpoint of that's what's prominent or one of the most prominent areas in the field. But in addition, I experienced my own depressive state at one point due to some stresses that were going on in my life. And that made me even more stimulated to want to learn about depression and develop treatment programs for it. And that's why you're so successful, because you can speak from experience rather than simply that it was a timely topic and you wrote a book. You have a life experience, not only from your work, but for you as an as an individual. Uh, your book seems so invigorating. I'm on the website, StuartEisendroth.com. That's D-R-A-T-H, Stuart eisendroth.com. I'm talking with Dr. Eisendroth about his book, When Antidepressants Aren't Enough, Harnessing the Power of Mindfulness to Alleviate Depression. And in, in your reference, you're talking about the millions of people all over the world that are taking some type of, of medication. You know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people, there's the first answer, let me take a pill for something. And your research, along with other research, says that that only helps about half the people. I would, Im I would imagine physically that a lot of people have reactions just to the medication alone, don't they? Well, yes. Uh, the medications can have side effects and uh, you know, problems associated with it. I'm not anti-medication. For some people, it can be life-saving. But unfortunately, if you give people a full course of an antidepressant, only about 30% recover. And if you give the remaining people another antidepressant trial, only about an additional 20% recover. So that means after two full trials of antidepressants, you're, you have... 50% of people who haven't recovered. And really, that's what we wanted to help uh, develop a program for, help those people get better. 
Absolutely. And I, I, I totally hear you. And it, it seems that that's kind of an important way of, of facing anything, including depression, um, is to use a both and reality. I, I think that it's important to note that it's not like doing something is wrong. It's that it's doing more than one thing. It's, um, it's looking at treating the mind. Um, it's looking at different aspects of our diet and all the various things. So tell us, um, some of the discoveries within, within your book, obviously we want people to go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble, because this is the kind of book, um, that is a gift for anybody that you know and love, because there isn't a person that I know that either isn't affected immediately or has friends that are with this kind of uh, condition or situation. So what are the, what are some of the leading answers that, that you give related to when antidepressants aren't enough? Well, in, in this approach, it's really rather unique. We teach people to change their relationship to depression and change their relationship to the thoughts that occur in depression. In depression, there are very common negative thoughts that occur, and we actually know what the top 30 negative thoughts are for people. And uh, for any one person, they may not have all 30 of them, but they'll probably have their own Letterman top 10 negative thoughts that they have. Things like, uh, I'll never be successful, I'm not as good as other people, or I'll always be a failure, or I'm a bad person. And what we have to teach people in traditional cognitive behavior therapy, you try to answer back to those thoughts and come up with an alternative thought. But for somebody who's been depressed for a long time, they may have a lot of difficulty uh, answering back. In our study of individuals with depression coming into our research program, the average length of the de depressive episode was seven years. So they've been depressed for quite a while. And what we teach them, is, instead of trying to develop an alternative thought, is to change your relationship to those thoughts. So for example, if you walk down a street in a town that has shops along the street, you may find that each shop has another depressive thought. And in, typically in depression, you go into the store and buy that thought and make it your own and take it on and believe that thought as if it's a fact. But in our approach, we help people to walk down the street. They still notice the thought being there, but they don't go in the store and buy it. So the negative thoughts are still occurring, but you don't have to buy them. They can fade into the background so that they're like a, a radio turned down low. It's still there, and you never can get rid of all of the negative thoughts that occur, but you can change your relationship to them. So you're teaching a, you're teaching a daily practice of how to become yeah. more aware and responsible 
in your day-to-day life. Have have you found, uh, Dr. Eisendroff, that it takes, like if someone has uh, the habitual habit of how their mind has responded to things, does someone need to be patient with themselves as far as it it's, takes more than a, a day or a week to, you know, get into this practice? Does it take a series of time and patience? Yes, the, it does. In fact, you highlight a good point. What One of the things we teach people is to really bring more self-compassion to what they're doing. So instead of, uh, so for example, when they start out meditating, many people may say, oh, I'm a lousy meditator because I couldn't keep my mind focused versus bringing self-compassion to the picture and saying, oh, my mind wandered. That's what minds do. I'll gently and kindly bring the attention back to what I'm focusing on. Something like the breath, for example, or body sensations. Our minds tend to wander and that's normal. And learning to notice what's going on is what's important. Mindfulness is really knowing what you're experiencing as you're experiencing it. So if you notice your mind wander, and in depression it tends to wander towards negative thoughts, that you say, ah, there it goes again, and you gently and kindly bring the attention back. And that's so key because um, in, in the work I do and, and related to the work you do is is often uh, people want to take long-term issues and make it a quick fix. And it does require an understanding that you've got to be willing to put the time in and celebrate the little advancements that, that you make along the way. So you you're teaching the mindfulness you're teaching the you are the observer um uh, my saying is though that i have lots of of thoughts that are passing or i may have things that may be upsetting i'm the one ultimately that's making the decision to pull it into my gut like a gut feeling or instinct or you know or to make my adrenaline go I'm the one that's working with that kind of space that I can keep these things outside of me instead of affecting me in a greater way. But that's been, it's been a long-term practice. Um, In addition to that, is it all about the mind or there's some other key points that you offer? Does, does diet come into play? Well, having a healthy diet is definitely important. And also Mm -hmm. having a program of activities such as exercise is very important. Exercise itself is a very powerful antidepressant. And if you can get into a regular program of even mild exercise, you don't have to start out running marathons, but just walking for 20 or 30 minutes a day can have a profound impact on depression. So, yes, there's a whole package of things from uh, eating a healthy diet that's uh, rich in nutrients to having exercise be part of your practice and also having a regular practice of mindfulness meditation. It doesn't have to be long. People sometimes have the misconception that this means I have to sit uh, on a cushion for 45 minutes a day. That isn't true. We don't know 
what the exact dose is for any one person. Some studies suggest as little as 10 minutes a day may be very powerful. And in our research, we found that some people actually do a three-minute meditation every day and find that helpful. So really, using uh, your own knowledge to find out what works best for you uh, and what length of time works best for you is most important. So in the book, we really, I really describe uh, sort of a buffet of different practices. And by the end of the book, you can decide what works best for you. Not, none of them work great for everybody, but you'll find what works best for you. And incidentally, we do find in our research that after eight weeks of practice, it produces a very significant effect. We actually measured the effect using uh, functional MRI. That's an MRI machine, magnetic resonance imaging, that really measures brain activation from second to second. And we found at the beginning of the, that, that study that people had uh, altered patterns of brain function when they were suffering depression. And when, uh, after completing the eight weeks, the brain patterns had essentially returned to normal in most people. So the meditation practice really had significant effects on brain function. It's not just smoke and mirrors. It, your mind and brain work together to have what we call plasticity, that they can change over time. We used to think the brain was fixed and nothing could alter it, but that's no longer accepted now we know that by changing your, your thinking, you can actually change the way your brain functions. I have been using for many years. Um, I wouldn't say that I have ever been a person that would be depressed. I would say that part of my life issue would attribute to being a sugar addict you know, starting early on as a kid, eating sugar, and then transferring the sugar to um, the most noted teenager experience called alcohol. <laughs> so, um, so feeding that, you know, feeding that. And so it, it took, um, of course, being sober has helped for 32 years, but it took the, uh, the energy of that of being aware of how much activity is going on in the mind at one time and the different conversations that were going on at any time, whether they were anxiety risen, whether they were busy making, whether they were the inner critic or yada, yada. And yet what I know for sure, having been willing to continue to invest the time is you can slowly eliminate so much of that going on in your head that there's free space and um and it just makes such a difference and what i have noticed and what i say now is that a trained mind equals an open heart because your heart is more available and more open when all of these conversations are are going on and I wanted to share that with you with someone in your field, but also with people in our audience, because 
like you said, you have to be patient. You don't go from the habits of years and years and years in your life with seven days and then you're totally different. It, it must be worth the effort that you put into it. That's right. It, it, it's a practice and that's why we call it a practice. It's something you, you don't, it's like any other skill really. You know, you don't learn to play the piano after a day of practice or even after a week. It takes time to learn the skills but you can learn them. For example, you know, one of the big drivers of depression is rumination. And rumination means you're locked in a cycle of thinking about something from the past and going over and over it again. And usually with self-criticism involved and a sense of uh, helplessness or hopelessness about it. And uh, that tends to drive depression. But what we teach people is you can actually bring mindfulness to that process. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you notice that you're ruminating. Most people don't even notice that. They're just stuck in the ruminative cycle. And if you notice you're ruminating, ah, there I am ruminating again. You might <laughs> notice this in the, in, during a meditation where you're focusing on your breath and then your mind drifts off to start ruminating about, I should have said this in this situation or I should have said that or I wish I had made this decision. And when you notice yourself ruminating, you can say, ah, there I am ruminating. Now I have a, a chance to how I respond to that. Do I stay stuck in that or do I bring my attention back to the breath? So you have a choice of either continuing with the rumination or letting it go. And when you have that choice, it does bring a sense of open-heartedness and a sense of freedom because you are an observer now and you're able to decide really how you want to direct your attention. I love how you uh, talk about in the book um, because it is about changing the relationship with yourself, you say that your mind is is not always your friend. <laughs> That's right. You know, mo most of us tend to think of whatever our thoughts are, are correct and think of our mind as being, as being our friend. But in fact, in depression, it's not. You tend to generate negative thoughts uh, catastrophizing types of thoughts and there's no uh, your mind is not really being your friend you have to challenge those thoughts and challenge them in the sense of are they are they just thoughts or are they actual facts this this point kind of got driven home to me when I was uh, in college Back in the 1960s, really, during the Vietnam era, I was a participant in a, in a student uh, uh, protest about the war in Vietnam. And I saw, and it was a peaceful protest, and then I saw the police who were there actually come forward and start beating up the students. But when I read about it the next day, in the paper, it was just that it was presented as just the opposite. It was presented as if the students who had really been just standing in a line 
uh, and not attacking, but it was written up as if the, stu the students started to attack the police. And that was the first time I realized you can't believe everything you read. And similarly, you can't believe everything you think. Just because you think it, like, uh, you know, take the example of I sent an email to a friend of mine and I don't get a response. What do I think? If I'm depressed, I might think they no longer like me or they're, uh, they're angry with me or uh, they don't want to have anything to do with me anymore or I upset them. If you're not depressed, you might say something quite a bit different. And mindfulness gives you the space to do that. You might say, oh, maybe my email got lost. I'll send it again. Or maybe my email got stuck in spam. Or maybe they're so busy they didn't have time to respond yet. A lot of alternatives. And depending on the thoughts that you, you have, if you believe the first type of thought, you're going to be more depressed. If you believe one of the latter types of thoughts, like the email just got lost uh, or, or is stuck, as has happened to me, is actually stuck in my outbox, then your attitude about the situation is dramatically different and it doesn't generate depression. I love that. That's a great analogy and a very, very true of just keeping things real and not projecting all these languages and everything going on. Um, we used to say that, um, or what we've taught through the years is anxiety is when you're in the future and depression is when you're in the past. Is that a nice platitude? Is it a, a beautiful cliche or is there a deep level of truth to that? And I know that we're just barely going to get into it when them return from break and delve more into your book and talk about some of these things. But um, is there some wisdom to that? Or is that just we were living in what we knew then? No, that is actually uh, very accurate. We okay. think of depression as, as being focused on the past and the person feels, whether they actually have or not, they feel that they've experienced a loss a loss of a loved one, a loss of money, a loss of a job, whatever the case may be. They feel as if a loss has occurred. In anxiety, they feel as if a loss is going to occur, that some disaster is looming. So what I like to think of depression and anxiety as being disorders of time. One is focused on the past and one is focused on the future. And mindfulness is so helpful because it teaches the person to focus on the present. And if you're focused on the present, you're not focused on the past or the future. You're just focused on what's happening right now. And that doesn't give your mind the bandwidth to focus on the past or the future. You're just focused now. And it's by being focused on the present, it's naturally antidepressant and anti-anxiety. Uh, your work is, it must be so rewarding for you. I'm talking with Stuart Eisendroth, and he is representing his book through life experience and knowledge and his work as a psychiatrist, the book, When Antidepressants Aren't Enough, Harnessing the Power 
of mindfulness to alleviate depression. Thank you so much for being with us and join me at templehays.com, firstunity.org and find out more about the kind of programs that we offer and the various programs that we have that are available to you. We will be right back after this short break. Thank you so much for being with us. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to The Intentional Spirit with Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome, everyone, and and thank you for being intentional. This is a long-awaited, necessary conversation with Dr. Stuart Eisendroff. It's a subject that's near and dear to many of our hearts, and knowing so many of my listeners throughout the world, I know that this is a, a subject matter that It's not like, oh, this is something that's happening in the world. I think most of us can say it's something that's happened in our world. Uh, Each and every one of us have been affected either through immediate family, community colleagues, uh, through people that um, have issues uh, with mental health, depression, anxiety, um, and, um, and some of them, unfortunately, give up and succumb to a very drastic measure of of taking their own lives. And so we're wanting to address this today to be a part in some way to highlight um, what people need to know. We're talking about Dr. Eisendroff's book, When Antidepressants Aren't Enough, uh, Harnessing the Power of Mindfulness to Alleviate Depression, to allow people to get to a place, uh, many of them, that there are other alternatives. Don't take your life. And on the other hand, don't let your life be taken. And so it's kind of twofold and it affects all of us. So again, go to his website, get the book, share it with friends, give it for gifts. These are the kind of gifts we need to give people today and these times is to play a part in this reality. i I love it, Dr. Eisendrop, that when I was early on coming into uh, sobriety, I, I, because I was surrounded by, you know, uh, a, a lot of spiritual community and, and you know, <laughs> the nirvana and, you know, all of that. And, and I'm not making fun of it, but I, I do think we've advanced some since then, thank heavens. But one of my favorite sayings is, we are healed by what we turn towards, not what we turn away from. And I, I want to applaud you for supporting people and the necessity of these need to be our conversations now. And thank you for not turning away from this and making it part of the work that you do. So I applaud you. Well, thank you. Uh, that uh, Turning towards is very important. In a sense, what, what we talk about and teach is acceptance. And the more acceptance you have, the freer you are to be able to respond to a situation. If you take it uh, like if, if you tried to, to de- deny 
your depression, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. If you accept, okay, there I am depressed, uh, what can I do about it? Then there's a really a host of things. You can do uh, mindfulness meditation. You can do mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. You can get other help. You can take medication. You can do psychotherapy. There's a variety of things that you can do once you accept, okay, I, I do have depression. So it puts you in a position of being able to respond to it. So many times people have uh, a situation where they're uh, so critical of themselves for having a depressive episode that it actually worsens their depression. They get depressed about being depressed. Like I'm such a weak person or uh, I'm not a good person or I should be able to do better. A lot of shoulds, which is really another form of self-criticism, shoulding on yourself. And uh, what we try to teach people is two things. One is mindfulness helps you focus your attention, sort of like a, a spotlight being focused on something. And in our meditations, it may be the breath, it may be body sensation, it may be images a variety of things that are described in the book. But the other thing about mindfulness that's important is in using that spotlight, we also put a lens of self-compassion in that spotlight so that we bring a sense of kindness and gentleness to ourselves, which is so important because people with depression have a tendency to be very self-critical and very... Uh, demeaning of themselves. And what we say, if you take the example of uh, you made a mistake, if you're depressed and you might say, oh, I'm such a dummy for making a mistake. If you add the lens of self-compassion, you could say, I made a mistake, but I'm, I'm human. And in fact, making mistakes is part of my common humanity with other people. We all make mistakes. And I can learn from the mistake and go on rather than being stuck in criticism. I love, I love that. And um, as I've said through the years, I, I make mistakes. I'm not a mistake. And I think that there's a, there's a big, there's a big difference with that. And, and of course the other knowledge is that if you live your life to be a person that, isn't making a mistake sometime you're probably not doing very much, <laughs> you know? And yeah. so, um, you're, you have created such an awareness in the power of observing self. And that's where so much of it is, right? That's where the power of change lies. That's right. As you, well, we like to term it as you decenter from yourself. You gain some distance from yourself. You're able to see yourself. Ah, there I am, generating negative thoughts. Or ah, there I am, uh, uh, reacting in this way rather than responding skillfully. What we like to use as an analogy is if you were standing on a railroad overpass. And you could look down at the cars coming along the track of a freight train, and each car had a negative thought. 
but instead of jumping down onto a, one of those cars, if you're depressed, if you jump onto one of those cars, you don't know where you're going to end up. You might end up in a town called Depressionville. But on the other hand, if you stay on that overpass and just watch the thoughts come into focus and then go out of focus, you're in a position to be the observer. Instead of hopping onto those cars, you can observe them come into focus and then move out of focus. And that allows you to be freer to respond more skillfully. What do you feel about, and with your experience, and I, I know that uh, so many things in our psychology and in our humanity is layered. Um, one of the things that I'm often so uh, surprised by is that when people think of themselves as a, shall I say, a label called a good person, or perhaps one could be a religious person, or in our communities, uh, we are more so into spirituality, which is more inclusive than one particular brand or, you know, whatever of faith, more inclusive and uh, kind of honoring all of those. But there's something very interesting about that it's not okay to have anger. Could you talk about that a little bit? Because I'm I'm often so surprised by that because I think if we were created, you know, and we were created by something greater than ourselves and we have the emotion called anger, there must be a reason for it. Well, yes, anger is a common emotion and uh, it can be generated in, in various ways. In fact, sometimes we like to think of depression as being very much related to anger that isn't being expressed. Uh, in fact, one way of trying to understand depression is asking the person, instead of who you're angry with, because they may not be in touch with that, we ask them, who are you depressed at? And they may be depressed at uh, a spouse, a, a supervisor, a boss, uh, a situation that they're stuck in and not able, feeling not able to do anything about it. But if they can actually, uh, what we call, cook their anger, they can be in a position to do something else about it. I'll give you an example. Say a father says to his son, who has asked him if he can use the car to go on a to go to a, a, a dance at the high school, and the father says, yes, you can use the car, uh, but be home by 11 o'clock. And the son doesn't get home till 11.30. Now, the fathers could naturally be angry about that and take it that the uh, uh, son, uh, you know, didn't hold to the, to the boundary. But if we look at it more closely, what, what's going on? The father actually became angry when he was feeling hurt. He was feeling hurt that his son wasn't home and feeling hurt that he was worried about his son, what had happened. 
you know, had the son been in an accident or what had gone on. So his anger was a reflection of his being hurt. And once he recognized this, then you're in a position to be able to respond to it more skillfully. So in this case, instead of that father being angry and saying, you'll never get the car again, you're done driving, the father was able to talk with his son and say, you know, son, I was really worried when you weren't home. It made me worry about all the things that could have happened. And uh, I want you to know how it affected me. And the son learns from that the impact of his behavior, and they're able to come up with a plan going forward that takes it into account more so than if the father had reacted just in an angry way. There's a certain technique that we use in order to teach how to deal with powerful emotions like anger. It's called the RAIN approach, R-A-I-N. And R stands for recognize. The first step is to recognize that you're having an angry situation or you're feeling angry. The next, A, stands for allow it. Okay, there it is. I have anger. I'm going to accept it, but that's what's going on. The I is I'm going to investigate it. What is it about? Is it about my feeling hurt, which is often the case, or is it about some other aspect of the situation that I can learn more about if I think about it for a bit? And then N, the R-A-I-N, the N stands for non-self. That is taking the observing self position. So you step out of yourself and say, there... There I am having anger. There I am being angry. And step out and observe yourself being angry. And that often gives you the distance to be able to deal with the angry situation differently, with more compassion and more peacefulness. I'll give you another example that I had in my own life. I had, uh, I was on a, a retreat once, a, a meditation retreat, where you're silent for a period of time, actually for seven days. And the highlight of the day is your midday meal. So I got my midday meal and I sat down at a table without anybody else being there. And I uh, was eating my food in a mindful way. I was paying attention to the food the sensations, the taste, and so on. And I was really enjoying it. Then somebody sat down at my table, another person, and he started sniffling, sniffling like constantly. And I got furious because I, I thought, why is this guy ruining my meal? I, would, I can't focus on my, uh, on my food anymore. I'm just bothered by this fellow. And I was furious. And, of course, you can't talk in this setting. And then I said to myself, well, let's apply that compassionate lens to the situation. First of all, I recognized this guy is not aiming his sniffling at me. 
Secondly, maybe the poor guy has allergies or a cold or whatever. And my attitude about him changed dramatically. And as soon as I did that, as soon as I applied that compassion to the process, my irritation vanished. And I was able to go back and focus on my food and my eating and not be bothered by his sniffling anymore. So it showed the tremendous power of compassion. Compassion, in some ways, as the uh, Buddhist philosopher Matthew Ricard says, compassion is the antidote for anger. That's a powerful story. It's it's likened to when we make it about ourselves, it will be. And how to step out of, of that place. When you were using the acronym of RAIN, when you were talking about the non-self, the N for the non-self, I, it's very interesting in the language of I am having anger or I am having frustration. That's a powerful language versus I'm so frustrated, I'm so angry. It, it does set it up to be perceived and worked with from an entirely different way. That was a that was a powerful aha for me. You know, the difference between I'm so frustrated to I'm having frustration right now. And it's an experience that from the get-go of the languaging, it kind of makes it outside you instead of inside you. Did you mean that intentionally or is that just the way you naturally language conversation? Is that because you've lived so long in the practice of observing the self? Well, it is intentional because the more you can move to that observing self role, uh, the more equanimity you have. For example, in depression, the person might say, I'm a bad person, and uh, or I'm no good, or I'm not as good as other people. And what we teach people is to step out of that. When I say I'm not a good person, actually what I am saying is I have the thought I'm not a good person. And making that slight adjustment in languaging is huge. Because if you understand you're having a thought, then you can deal with that thought a little bit differently. And it has powerful effects. Because... If I have a thought, I'm not a good person, and I can recognize that, I can choose, well, am I going to accept it, or am I not going to accept it? Or is it just another thought I'm having, and I'm going to bring my attention back to whatever I'm focusing on in the everyday moment? So uh, it gives you a, a, the ability to bring compassion to the package and uh to have an opportunity of how you respond to thoughts. Just like, you know, that article in the newspaper I mentioned after the student uh, protest, you, have a, you actually have a choice of whether you're going to believe your thought and accept it as a fact, or you're going to recognize it's just a thought. So stepping into that decentered role is very intentional and very important 
in being able to distance yourself from those types of negative thoughts that are so common in depressive states. One of the things that I was curious about is um, within your book, you talk about the difference between pain and suffering. What does that what does that mean to you and your work and the people through the years that you've seen? Well, it means that the amount of pain you have, and it can be either physical or emotional pain, produces a certain amount of suffering. You know, if you have, if you have, uh, if you step on a thorn, you're going to have a certain amount of pain in your foot. Now, humans have a tendency to bring what is termed adventitious suffering to the place, to the package. So instead of just saying, I have this thorn in my foot, you might say, why do I have that? Was I so careless that I didn't see it? Was it, was I a bad person and is this some kind of punishment? Or is this related to my uh, growing up and how I was treated as a child or my relationship to my mother or on and on and on. And, you know, if you take it from the viewpoint of a bear in the woods stepping on a thorn, they have a thorn in their foot and they move to pull it out. They don't get entrapped with that adventitious suffering. And that's the same thing that we deal with with depression. If you say, I'm depressed, and that's, that is a painful state. But if you say, I'm depressed, and add to that pain uh, what we call resistance, like I shouldn't have this pain. I'm a weak person. If I was only stronger, I wouldn't have this pain. I, the fact that I have this pain or this depression means I'm not as good as other people. And so the amounts you add into the, the actual depressive state that you're in leads to greater suffering. And if you can, instead of uh, uh, bringing those thoughts to the pain, you have much less suffering. So, for example, if a person has diabetes or asthma or some other kind of recurrent medical condition, when they have a recurrence, they don't say, I'm a bad person because I had a recurrence. But in depression, there's that tendency to bring self-criticism and uh, uh, anger towards the self. And if you can let go of that, let go of that kind of resistance. We say that resistance times the pain equal the suffering. So if you lower the resistance, you lower the suffering. Not to say that the pain goes away completely, but it comes more back into a normal focus. What would you say, how has this work changed you? Well, it's changed me in terms of trying to apply the observing self uh, to experiences I have. I mean, for example, I have migraine headaches, and sometimes... I would, I might say, oh, this is terrible. I have this migraine. It's, it's so bad. And then I'd apply some 
anxious thoughts to it, like how am I going to be able to give this important talk tomorrow if I'm still having the headache and what's going to happen. It'll be a catastrophe and so on. If I apply mindfulness to the picture, I might step out of the self there and say, ah, there's Stuart having a migraine. And once I observe it from that perspective, it reduces all of that type of resistance to uh, like uh, what's going to happen with this. I can't have this tomorrow. It's going to be a disaster. That is gone. It disappears. And I just notice myself having a migraine and I can view it with some distance. And usually that actually has a, a tendency to markedly reduce the pain and the suffering going on. Through the years, have you, I'm sure you've gathered many, many stories, but is that so much of the joy in what you do is when people start really being in this practice? I'm sure that's why you wanted to put it into a book. Is so yes, more people much. could more people could have the information and 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 benefit. Has that been one of your greatest joys? Is once people start learning how to use the power of self observation and understanding some of these concepts, the the change that it makes um, for others. Absolutely. I mean, it it really is. Uh very rewarding when people start to get the concepts. And you, it takes some practice, and usually over eight weeks, it takes about maybe getting to the fourth or fifth week before they start to really get the concepts. But one fellow stands out in my mind. At the end of eight weeks, he said, you know, I, I guess if I can forgive myself for my mind wandering when I'm meditating, I guess I can forgive myself for other things. And it brought such a sense of peace to him. that, it, And this fellow was highly self-critical when he got started. That it was just wonderful. But he had a different attitude towards himself. And seeing that kind of thing, or a woman who said uh, at the beginning, I'm, I'm so anxious, I have so many anxious thoughts. But more important than that, I'm critical of myself for having those anxious thoughts. And by the end of eight weeks, she said, I still have anxious thoughts, but I don't berate myself for having them. I can accept them, but that's just part of me. Thank you so much for what you've added to our lives today, Dr. Stuart Eisenroth. Great Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. 
Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.